All right, welcome to our Sunday School class. We'll go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Um, we're in Genesis chapter 29, and we're going to uh, begin with uh, verse 13. So that's where we're going to be starting today, Genesis 29, 13. So uh, I'll go ahead and pray while you're turning there. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've brought uh, some cooler weather this morning, that it's, uh, uh, we've got some breeze going and the temperature's cooled down a little bit. It's been a rough a uh, week with the uh, extreme high temperatures, but we thank you for uh, keeping us healthy and safe and providing for us and seeing us through uh, this uh, heat wave that we're going through. So Lord, I asked that you would just sanctify this time, just enter the, this space, enter this building, enter the hearts and lives of, and minds of everybody who's here and prepare our hearts to receive your word. Help us to know what your word is trying to say to us so we can apply it to our hearts and our lives and to dig deeper into the word, to go beyond the flannel graph Sunday school narrative that we're so used to and we were brought up and we know so well. And we can learn more about your word so that we can be more knowledgeable when we share with other people and we can grow in our depth and understanding of the word, which will supplement our understanding of prophecy and of things that uh, in the New Testament that refer back to uh, things that we're going to be studying in Genesis. So, uh, Father, we love you and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so Genesis 29, and we're going to start with verse 13. And I'm reading from the Tree of Life version, which is a messianic version of the scriptures. It says, Now when Laban heard the news about Jacob, so last week we uh, saw that Jacob had to flee uh, his homeland because his brother Esau wanted to kill him. And his mother sent him away. Now, the sad thing about that is that um, Rebecca never saw her son Jacob again. She died in the interim wall while he was away. So she sent him away in order to spare his life. Because what would have happened if, if Jacob stayed? Both Esau and uh, Jacob would have been killed. Because if Esau would have went through with his plan in killing Jacob, then the clan would raise against him and demand justice for Jacob's blood. And Jacob and Esau would be killed, and then there would be no hope of the, of the Messianic line of carrying on. There would have been no 12 tribes of Israel. So as not to lose both of her sons, uh, she told Jacob to run to her brother's house, which would be Jacob's uncle Laban. And when he gets there, he meets Rachel and immediately falls in love with her. And uh, she's a shepherdess, and he shows his bravado and his macho masculinity and, and rolls away the giant stone off the well so she could water the sheep. And uh, so we pick it up here where uh, Rachel runs back and tells Laban what, what happened. Now, when Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, hugged and kissed him, which, you know, that's very uh, a very prominent, normal custom back in the Arab world in the Middle East. Uh, usually they kissed on both sides of the cheek. Um, it's kind of like how we shake hands today. It's our equivalent to shaking hands. So now when Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, hugged and kissed him, and brought him into his house. Then he told Laban all of these things. So uh, Jacob just kind of set Laban down and told him why he was there, what the circumstances were behind him being there, and all the things that transpired uh, for him to get to that point. Verse 14, Then Laban said to him, Surely you are my own bone and flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. 
Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, should you, should you, my relative, serve me for nothing? Tell me what should be your wages. You know, a lot of times we take our relatives for granted. And, uh, you know, I don't expect anything free from my relatives. I love them. And because I love them and I know that they're doing something out of the kindness of their heart, I still want to repay them in some way. Uh, just to show my appreciation, to show that I'm not using them or taking advantage of them. Uh, and a lot of times they'll refuse and say, no, 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 we're family, don't worry about it. But uh, I always like to pay our relatives because you don't want to take your relatives for granted and um, take advantage of them. Because a lot of times you only hear from certain relatives when they need something. And I don't think they mean anything by it. I don't, you know, life gets busy. You get wrapped up in your job and, and your immediate family, your kids, your grandkids, and what have you. And then you all of a sudden you need something. They say, oh, well, cousin so-and-so is good at that. I'll give him a call. And then you think to yourself, well, man, I haven't talked to him since last time I needed something. This is going to look really bad. So I don't think that people purposely want to take advantage of their relatives. But life gets so busy, you just it's hard to keep in touch with everybody, especially when your family keeps growing and expanding. Like, I know my first cousins and I know my second cousins, but now my cousins, first and second cousins, have had kids. I have no idea who they are. I mean, I see them on Facebook and I may know their name, but it's like I've never met them. I don't know anything about them. So the greater your family expands, the more you get separated and the harder it is to keep up. So here Laban initially wants to do a good thing and wants to pay uh, Jacob for his services. Verse uh, 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, a lot of rabbis believe that they were twins. Because twins ran in the family. Um, so the thing was, though, it, it's just like Jacob and Esau. They weren't identical twins, per se. They were most likely fraternal twins. So they looked different enough, but they were twins. And a lot of people believe the same thing with Rachel and Leah, uh, that they were twins. But Leah, if they were twins, then that means that Leah came out first and Rachel followed her. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older daughter was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, I'm going to reveal a mystery to you that has boggled the minds of Bible scholars for years. And people still talk about it. They'll read this verse and pass over it, not really knowing what it means, not, not really explaining it to anyone's satisfaction. But I think that I've kind of unlocked the key to this. Verse 17, Leah's eyes were delicate. Some translations say that they were weak. Yeah, Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So, you know, their body types were different. So if they were twins, they were fraternal, uh, that they, didn't look, they weren't identical twins. They didn't look alike. They were different enough. But I think something even greater separated Rachel and Leah as far as looks are concerned. Now, let's go all the way back to Noah and his sons. If you'll remember... From Adam and Eve up until Noah, everybody was born the same. Everybody was black. It's hard for people to believe, but scientifically that has to be the case because you have to have a lot of skin tone, a lot of melanin, before you can have a lack of it. So everybody up until Noah was born black, and Noah was the anomaly. And um, Noah's father actually thought that, that Noah may not be his. He thought that maybe that maybe his wife had an indiscretion with a fallen angel and therefore 
produce this strange son because in the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal literature and like the book of uh, Enoch and Jasher and other places and Jubilees, it talks about how Noah, um, his eyes lit up the room and talked about how he was a lighter skin color, how he was white. So that was strange. So, of course, um, Noah's father was like, how could this be my kid? <laughs> you know? um, I, it, it reminds me of a comic that I've seen where it has a, um, a, a yellow crayon and a blue crayon. And the blue crayon was the mother and the yellow crayon was, was the father. Now, the son was born purple. So it couldn't have been the yellow crayon son, right? So when the child was born, he knew that that wasn't his because it wasn't the right color. He should, you know, yellow and blue make green. Yellow and blue don't make purple. So somewhere, you know, his blue wife, you know, met a red crayon somewhere to produce a purple child. <laughs> so naturally, um, Noah's father had doubts that, that Noah was actually his son because he was born white. He, his, his eyes lit up the room, which, which indicates to me that Noah was born albino. Noah was born without any melanin in his system, no skin color whatsoever. And this is what gave rise to the different skin tones of the world and the ethnicities of different peoples of the world. So you had Noah's three sons, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. And with Noah's genetics being in the mix, that gave rise to the different skin colors of the world. So Ham is the father of all of the African peoples. Uh, so they're called the Hamitic race or the Hamitic ethnicities. So he was born black, just like everybody else up to that time. Then you had Shem. He was born brown. And Shem is the father of the Semitic people, which would be all of the Jewish, Hebrew, Israelite, and Arab peoples. Then you had Japheth which was born with the least amount of skin color, and he is the father of all the Caucasian uh, and Asian peoples of the world. And so that's how we got the rainbow of colors we have today. And of course, there's been so much intermingling with the different uh, ethnicities of the world that you know, the, the, the human rainbow spectrum runs from you know, jet black to albino white and every shade in between. So here we have another instance of albinism in the scripture. Um, interestingly enough, guess what Laban's name means? Laban means white. So to me, that's another indication that Laban was probably albino because his name means white. And then here comes Leah and she has delicate eyes. What's one of the traits of albinism? The blue eyes or pink eyes, and they're very sensitive to the sun. And so in some translations, it says she has delicate eyes. and some translations, it says she has weak eyes. And nobody really understands, understood what that means until now. So I believe that if Laban was an albino, that he passed on this trait to Leah. She was the oldest daughter, and she was white an albino, just like her father Laban. Her eyes were delicate, which kind of is another indication and another hint, and would probably be another reason that Jacob would have had a sort of an aversion to Leah, that he didn't find Leah as attractive because she didn't look like everybody else. She wasn't the dark-haired, dark, exotic, Middle Eastern woman, uh, you know, with, with, you know, didn't have the body type that he liked and whatnot. So he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And maybe these were some, some reasons why this happened. So people then ask, well, if, if they look so different and that was the case, 
How could he confuse Leah in the marriage bed? How did that happen? We'll get to that because that's part of this story. So we'll get to that here in a minute. So uh, verse 17, Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob was, was in love with Rachel, so he said, let me serve you for seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked for Rachel seven years, yet in his eyes it was like a few days because, he, because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are completed so that I may, may go to her. So Laban gathered all the men of the place. He prepared a feast, and when it was evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and he went, and he went to her. Laban also gave her Zilpah, his female servant, to his daughter Leah as a female servant. So in the morning, behold, there she was, Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? So why have you deceived me? But Laban said, it's not done in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the bridal week for this one, then, uh, then we'll also give you the other for work that you will do for me another seven years. So, Jacob, his name being heel catcher, his name being surplanter, his name being deceiver, ends up being deceived himself. And some people believe that this is just kind of like divine karma, if you will, or divine retribution, just as how Jacob... Uh, you know, uh, deceived. So, well, I don't even think he deceived uh, Esau because the birthright, he legally fair and square sold his birthright because he despised it. But a lot of people see that as a shrewd, you know, tricky move on Jacob's part. So because Jacob got the birthright and then Jacob ends up deceiving Isaac on his mother's behest for the blessing, therefore getting the full package of inheritance and blessing, uh, he, he, he deceived Esau. He tricked Esau. So a lot of people are thinking, well, this is just Jacob getting his just desserts. You know, just as Jacob done to somebody, uh, somebody has done to Jacob. You reap what you sow. You know, what goes around comes around. So a lot of people will see this, this event as, as kind of retribution uh, for that. So I think that's kind of interesting. So, you know, Jacob was very shrewd, very calculating. He was very crafty. And he must have gotten that trait from his uncle Laban because apparently Laban was the exact same way. And so we see that uh, uh, Jacob is deceived. Now, a lot of people, if, if they were fraternal twins, Rachel and Leah, and they did look so different, and Leah was an albino and Rachel was not, and their body forms were different because it says that Rachel was, you know, was lovely in form, but it doesn't say the same thing for Leah. How could, have, how could Jacob have been deceived? Well, several things. Number one, he took Laban at his word. He just kind of assumed, why would my own uncle deceive me? So he just kind of went in fully believing that everything was going to be fair and square and kosher and that everything was going to be done right. So he, so he already had that pre, uh, preconceived idea in his head that everything was going to be fine. Second of all, uh, the wedding was, was, pro, was likely performed at night. So the only thing that you would have lighting would be torches in the compound fires and torches and things like that. So things look different uh, in, in different kinds of light. For instance, when I put my pants on this morning, uh, my pants looked fine and I stepped out the door. 
And there was cat hair all over my pants because it wasn't the right kind of lighting. So I had to go back in and get a lint brush and clean my pants off because the light did not reveal in the house, the light did not reveal all this cat hair, but I stepped into the sunlight, it revealed everything. So in the same way, uh, with just torches and lanterns and uh, fire as light and not natural daylight, that would have uh, perpetuated this, this deception of Laban and perpetuated this ruse. Second of, uh, third of all, um, she would have been covered from head to toe because of the Middle Eastern modesty codes back then. She would have had a veil. It's kind of like the uh, some of the uh, Orthodox Muslim women, um, the Shia Muslims, where they just where they're all dressed in black and they're just the isolates for the women. It's almost like that. So Leo probably would have had a bridal outfit that would have covered her entire face except for her eyes. So, um, and with the light being as dark as it was, he probably couldn't see her eyes very well. So, you know, and, and maybe there was even a veil, like a, a sheer veil to kind of cover her eyes so that her eyes would not be a dead giveaway that this was Leia. So those are probably some other reasons and explanations. Not only that, but it was a wedding. It was a party. The wine was flowing. And so Jacob and everybody else would have been drinking. And when you're inebriated, uh, a little bit tipsy, a little bit drunk, you don't notice things. You don't notice details. And so that could have been another layer to the deception of how Laban was able to pull this off and fool Jacob and give Leah in marriage instead of Rachel. So at the end of the night, they went into you know, the marriage tent. And of course, the marriage tent's not going to have any light in it. It's dark. You know, so he just naturally thought it was Rachel. And when he woke up in the morning and turned over in his bed and lo and behold, it was Leah, he freaked out. He's like, what in the, how did this happen? So by the time he woke up, he was sober. And by the time he woke up in the morning, there was enough sunlight in the tent in order to, you know, make this discovery. So hopefully that clears up that kind of mystery there. Um, all right. So. Find my place here. All right, so he marries Leah, and then uh, the uh, a marriage, like today, when somebody gets married, it's just a celebration for a day, right? The people get married, they have a reception, and then they go off into the sunset with tin cans tied behind their car and just married written on the back of their windshield. But back in this day and age, a marriage celebration lasted an entire week. It was a week-long celebration. So that's why Laban said after the marriage week, after this week of celebration is over, you can go ahead and immediately marry Rachel, but you're still obligated to me to work another seven years. So he was able to marry Rachel right away instead of having to wait another seven years. But nonetheless, after he got Rachel, he had to continue working for his uncle Laban. So we kind of see the deception here. And in and, and, and these two sets of twins, I want us to uh, kind of like get the picture here. So you had uh, Jacob and Esau. You had Esau who was technically older, Jacob who was technically younger. You had Esau who was macho, he was hairy, he was handsome, he was you know the, the, the rough and tumble outdoorsman. And Jacob was very plain. He was a man among the tents. He was a scholar. He was a chef. He was a cook. He liked to stay among the tents and some say would do women's work. And then you have another set of twins, if Rachel and Leah were indeed twins, and you have Leah who was older and Rachel who was younger, 
But Leah, even though she was older, she was the one who was plain. And even in some translations, it says that she was plain. So there's nothing, nothing really uh, that would just make her stand out as far as beauty or anything like that. And then you had Rachel, who was the pretty one. So really, kind of like Esau and Rachel would have been a good match because they were so similar, and Jacob and Leah would have been a good match because they were so similar. So I kind of think it's interesting, the contrast with these two, uh, two sets of twins that were actually cousins. Um, now, believe it or not, uh, and it kind of sounds way far-fetched for us because of the Western world that we live in, um, life expectancy, you're lucky to hit 80. You know, um, and you're really lucky if you hit 100. But by the time that Jacob got married, he was 80 years old. He was 80 years old when he married Rachel. Uh, so, I mean, genetics were different back then. The environment was different back then. People lived longer back then. See, what I think happened is that after the flood, even before the flood, people lived hundreds of years. Methuselah lived 969 years. He lived almost a full day because according to god a day to the lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day and the lord said if you eat of this fruit and the very day you eat of it you will die so within a thousand years you're going to die so the life expectancy you weren't going to reach a thousand years and so methuselah came closest so what we believe according to answers in genesis and other creation researchers is that there was a water canopy that surrounded the earth because when the world was being recreated or reformed, it said that uh, the world was just a ball of water. It was formless, it was void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And then when God started creating, he said he separated water from water, and he created an expanse between the two, two layers of water. So you had a water sandwich, you had the earth water, and then you had the sky in the middle, and above that you had more water. And it was the water canopy. So when the flood came, it said that the windows of heaven were open, the windows of heaven burst open, and that's where the flood rains came from, was from that water canopy. Now what that water canopy did, scientifically speaking, was create a hyperbaric chamber. And we can recreate hyperbaric chamber in a laboratory setting. And, and people have done this, and they've put plants and animals in these hyperbaric chambers to live. And they live longer, and the fruit is bigger, uh, tomatoes are like the size of cantaloupes, you know, after being grown in a hyperbaric chamber. So that's one of the reasons we believe people lived longer, and they looked younger, too, despite living longer. So, you know, even though that Jacob was 80 years old, you know, he probably looked like he was in his maybe 20s or 30s. He probably looked fairly young for being 80. So we see that after the flood, the water canopy was dissipated. The water canopy went away because it became the rains of the flood. And after that, you notice that people that, that the life expectancy and the lifespan of people was being cut dramatically short. You had people living 400, 500, all the way to 900 years old. And after the flood, people started living 400, 300, 200, 100 and some years. So the life expectancy started getting shorter after the flood. So here we are, you know, uh, 6,000 some years later, and now our life expectancy is even shorter than it was for those in the Bible after the flood. So we're lucky if we're going to hit 80 years old. So that's maybe a, a, an explanation. And a lot of times people will read that and find out these facts, and they're like, I just can't believe the Bible because I can't believe it, because it seems so far-fetched. Well, that's because it was a different world back then, way different. So Jacob was 80 years old when he married the two sisters here. 
Okay. So it says, uh, verse 26, But Laban said, It is not done so in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the bridal week for this one, then we'll also give you the other for work that you will do for me another seven years or more. So Jacob was duped. He got the wool pulled over his eyes. You know, it was the classic uh, bait and switch. And so he's locked in because he loved Rachel so much. He's locked in for another seven-year contract. So, you know, seven plus seven, that's 14, right? If my math's right. Seven, yeah, okay. So 14 years. He, he, he worked a total of 14 years. That's pretty amazing, too. I mean, it's getting more rare that somebody spends their whole life at one company. I mean, it's getting fewer and fewer, the guys at the mill, that are working till retirement. Because these young people, they want to move on to bigger and better things. They can't stay in one place too long. So the younger people that are working at the mill probably won't retire there. You know, because they, they, you know, they want to get educated. They want to have a bigger job, a better job, or whatever. They don't make a career out of mill work. Uh, but so working 14 years for a single individual is, is pretty amazing. Verse 28, so Jacob did. He also completed this one's bridal week. Then he gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban also gave uh, the daughter Rachel, his female slave, Bilhah, to be a servant to her. That was another way that Laban probably fooled Jacob into thinking that Leah was actually Rachel. Because the rabbis believe that, you know, it says that... Um, Zilpah was, um, says Laban also gave Zilpah his female servant to his daughter Leah. So maybe originally Zilpah was actually Rachel's servant. So if he saw Zilpah at the wedding and Zilpah standing beside who he thought was Rachel, he'd be like, oh, well, this, is, this has got to be Rachel. If it wasn't Rachel, Bilhah would be here. So some rabbis believed it to further the ruse that he switched the servants on the sisters. So that was, that was another layer of this deception. So it says that uh, Jacob also went to Rachel and indeed loved Rachel more than Leah. So he served with him for yet another seven years. All right. I'm going to look at my notes, see if I've missed anything here. Okay. All right, let's keep going. Verse 31. Now Adonai saw that Leah was unloved. So he, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Back then, having kids was a big deal because that was the way that you were going to perpetuate your family line. Um, if, if you were unable to conceive, it, and it's still this way in a lot of cultures in a lot of countries, if you were unable to conceive, you are not considered a full, fully a woman. You're not considered um, worthy of marriage or... or you know, you, you are looked on as if you have been cursed by God. Because why else wouldn't you be able to have children unless God cursed you and closed your womb? You're not worthy to be a mother. You're not a full, complete woman. Something's wrong with you. You're damaged goods. So it was, it was a stigma upon women that weren't, uh, weren't able to conceive. And we kind of see this coming out in this story as well. So because God is for the underdog. Jacob was the underdog. He was the... He was the, the, the second born, but yet God prophesied to his mother, uh, Rebecca, um, Rebecca, that he was going to be the first and it was going to be the older that served the younger. And we, we already went over the story of how they were able to achieve that. Uh, so God sees that Leah is unloved. 
And she's getting treated badly and slighted and doesn't deserve it a single uh, uh, at all. None of this is her fault. None of this is her doing. She wasn't asked to be born albino. She wasn't asked to be married to Jacob. It's just that's what her father did. So she's kind of the innocent bystander and victim in all this. And she gets the short end of the stick. So God rewards her by allowing her to get pregnant and to have children. It says, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and, and named him Reuben because she said, For Adonai has seen my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. So the word, uh, the name Reuben means look, a son. And it was considered a blessing and favoritism of God if the firstborn child that you had of your wife was a son, because that was the heir, that was the one that was going to carry on the family lineage, the family name. So Leah said, well, since Rachel's not having kids and I produced a son for Jacob, maybe he'll love me now. Maybe he'll look favorably on me now. So uh, just even the name, you see Leah screaming out for attention from Jacob, screaming out for genuine, unconditional marital love, because Reuben means look, a son. You have Ru, which means look, and Ben, which means son. Look, a son. And so that's what, what uh, Le uh, Leah says. She says here, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and named him Reuben. Because she said, for Adonai has seen my affliction. She see, God sees that I'm not loved. God sees I've got the short end of the stick and I'm, you know, I, didn't, I don't deserve this. Surely now my husband will love me. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and said, for Adonai heard that I am hated. So he gave me this one also. And she named him Simeon. Simeon means to hear. So you're having the five senses kind of involved here. She's saying, look, Jacob, a son, don't you love me now? This is your firstborn, the strength of, your, of our union. This is, you know, the proof of our love. This is your heir. He's going to carry on the family name and lineage. And then the second son is uh, uh, Simeon, which is from the word Shema, which Shema means to hear or to pay attention to. So Simeon's name means hearing. Uh, God heard her cry. God heard. Could you imagine? Leah probably cried herself to sleep many a night with the predicament that she was in. When she was younger, she probably never imagined that she would be in a loveless relationship or a loveless marriage. And uh, she was just so desperate for love and attention and, and, and care from another man. And she named her son Simeon because, oh, I produced another son. You know, God heard me cry. God heard my, my distress. Okay, verse 34, then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and said, now this time my husband will join himself to me because I've given birth to three sons for him. And Levi means joined. Levi means to join together. And it's interesting that Levi becomes the priestly tribe. And the reason they become the priestly tribe is because Levi is joined together with God. So Levi means to be joined. So she's hoping that this would seal the deal, that she would get uh, you know, the, the status of first wife. Because in a polygamous marriage, wives, wives had a pecking order. Wives had rank. And so, of course, the one that was loved the most would get more of the attention, more of this and that and the other. And so it's as if Leah was jockeying for position, wanting to be over Rachel. She had that right because she was older. She should have been married off before Rachel, 
And, you know, she was getting the short end of the stick. So she's hoping that by producing these sons for Jacob, that she would she would get the attention. She would get the love. She would get the things that she needed. And that uh, through three sons that finally Jacob would fall in love with her and make her the first wife. All right. For this reason, he was named Levi. Verse 35. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and said, This time I praise Adonai. For this reason, she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. So the name Judah means praise. And that's my Hebrew name, Yehuda ben Shomer. Judah, uh, the son of Shomer, which my father's name was Bill. And Bill in Hebrew is Shomer. Shomer means guardian. So I'm Judah, the son of the guardian, Yehuda ben Shomer. So Judah means praise. So she's praising God because she had a, a fourth son. And maybe with a fourth son that Jacob would start praising her for producing sons for him. Now, four sons. Leah, Leah right off the bat, had four sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And I think this harkens back to Genesis 3.15 because the prophecy was that a son would be born that there would be a son born to a woman, and he was going to be the Redeemer. And maybe Leah thought, maybe one of these is going to be the Redeemer of mankind. Maybe, you know, there hasn't been a Redeemer yet. The prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet. I'm through the lineage of Adam and through the lineage of Shem that this was going to go through. So perhaps maybe one of my sons is going to be the Redeemer. One of her sons was not the Redeemer, but one of her sons was going to be the father, the, the, the tribal leader, the, the, the patriarch of the tribe that was going to produce the Messiah, and that was the last son born to her in this, this narrative, which was Judah. Judah means praise. And so it was from the tribe of Judah that Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, is born. And so the prophecy is, is somewhat beginning to be fulfilled through Leah, Genesis 3.15, that there was going to be a redeemer that was going to crush the seed of the serpent. And that seed of the serpent was going to strike at the heel of this, this redeemer of mankind. And so that has all been fulfilled in Messiah Yeshua. So Leah, she produced the priestly line of Levi and the messianic line of Judah. So Leah was the humble one, right? She was, she was plain. She wasn't that pretty. She was humble. And what does the Bible say about when somebody humbles themselves? That when somebody's humble, that they're going to be exalted, that they're going to be lifted up. So because Leah was humbled, or she was humble, God exalted her by allowing her to have the first four sons and allowing two of those four sons to be the priestly clan and the messianic or the kingly clan of, of the 12 tribes. Now, on the other hand, you had Rachel. She was proud. I'm the pretty one. I'm the favorite. You know, she was brought low. She was humbled because she was prideful. Huh, Jacob loves me more than you. But yet, God closed her womb. She couldn't have kids. And so, in, in this, as a result, uh, Rachel was humbled. And it kind of the same thing with uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the proud one. I'm the macho man. I'm the firstborn. I'm going to get the birthright. I'm going to get the inheritance. I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to carry on the name of the family. And God said, no, you're too prideful. You think you're too selfish. You think about yourself and about nobody else. So I'm going to reverse that on you. I'm for the underdog. I'm going to have Jacob be the one. So Jacob was, was humbled in, in a sense because, you know, he, he wasn't the big burly masculine man that, that Esau was. 
But yet, Jacob, because he was humbled, he's the one that God exalted as a result. And, and I think it goes back to what Paul's saying. I think it's in one of the letters to the Corinthians. He says, I use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And God does this all the time. God allows us to be painted into a corner. He allows us to lose all hope because he wants to be glorified in that circumstance and situation. He wants to prove that it's not by your power nor by your might, but by his that these miracles occur and these miracles happen. You know, it's just like Gideon. He had thousands of men at his disposal to go in and wipe out the enemy. But God said, no, 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 it's too much. Too many men to fight this nation, to fight this army. If you win, you're not going to give me credit. You're going to say, I did it all myself. We had enough men to do it. It was our own power and strength because we're such good warriors. We're so trained. We've got all the special equipment. So God said, no, Gideon, I want you to shave these numbers down through a process of elimination. Well, it got down to 300 men, 300 men to take on in an entire nation's army. Those seem like impossible odds, and really they were. Logically, statistically, Gideon should not have had the manpower to destroy the enemy nation. But yet God used those 300 men in a miraculous way, and when they won, there was no doubt in anybody's mind that God did this. It wasn't Gideon's leadership or his military strategy, or it wasn't the strength and prowess of the 300 men that were with him. It was God that did this. So we see God doing this over and over and over, and when he brings us through impossibly hard times, that's how our, that's how our faith is tested, and that's how our faith is strengthened. Because God comes through. He's for the underdog. And he wants to say, I'm going to fulfill my promises, but it's not going to be any easy road to fulfill these promises for you. But I'm going to make sure that you understand and know that I'm the one who did it. I mean, take a look at the nation of Israel. I don't care how great of survival skills that you have. I don't care how much of a a bush craftsman you are. You're not going to lead an entire nation of people in the desert and they're going to survive. Logically, statistically, all of Israel should have died in the desert. There should have been no way that they should have survived because there was hardly any water. There was hardly any food. And God miraculously provided manna for them, miraculously provided quail for them, miraculously provided water from a rock from them, for them. God kept coming through in these impossible situations. They wouldn't have been able to survive on their own without God. And that's why a lot of scholars think, oh, well, this is a fairy tale. The children of Israel, it was just, you know, an analogy. It didn't really happen because it's impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. You you just can't depend on science. You can't leave, you can't leave out the supernatural. So because of these miracles that had taken place, uh, Israel survived. There was another miracle that's rarely talked about regarding the children of Israel. Uh, One passage says that even though they were in the wilderness for 40 years, their shoes and their clothes never wore out. That's a miracle. You know, I, I mean, let's see, my wife, she's on her feet as an RN all the time. She probably buys new shoes like every three months. Because she's on her feet so much and walking and running about doing her work as an RN that, you know, the the shoes wear out very quickly every three months. So just imagine just these thin leather sold sandals that the children of Israel wore. They should have been worn out like probably in a month's time. They should have had holes in them. But but God said that their, their sandals and their clothes never wore out. That's a miracle. 
So we see God coming through in these miraculous situations. All right, I think let's get on into, we've got plenty of time, so let's move on into chapter 30. And we'll just see, see how far we can get. So verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 30, When Rachel saw that she bore no children for Jacob, Rachel was jealous of her sister. Well, naturally, obviously. So she said to Jacob, Give me sons. Uh, if there are none, I'll die. <laughs> yeah, like this is Jacob's fault. Rachel is trying to cast the blame on Jacob, saying, you're the one who's infertile. You're the one who, you know, who can't produce children for me. And he's like, um, I've got four sons by Leah, so how is that argument even valid? It's not my fault that you're not having kids. Don't come crying and blaming me for it. So we kind of see that Rachel was a little bit of a narcissist. She was a little bit selfish. She was a little bit prideful because she was so beautiful and she was the first choice. And so now she's nagging on Jacob. Rachel was jealous of her sister, so she said to Jacob, Give me sons. If there are none, I'll die. Kind of like, well, if you don't do what I ask, I'm going to hold my breath. I mean, it's like a, it's like a temper tantrum of a toddler. And Jacob wasn't going to have any of it. He put his foot down, and it says, But Jacob became furious with Rachel and said, Am I in, in the stead of God, the one who withheld from you the fruit of your womb? So here is this little jab, this little barb saying, I'm not the one who's cursed of God. I've got four sons through Leah. You're the one who's cursed of God because you can't have kids. Is it my fault that your womb is closed? No. It's not my say-so if you can have kids or not, if you're fertile or not. That's between you and God. But Jacob became furious with Rachel and said, Am I, instead of God, the one who withheld from you the fruit of, of the womb? That was like a verbal, a verbal jab, and it probably hurt her very much. So she said, Here is my maidservant, Bilhah. Go to her and let her give birth on my knees, so that from her I may also build a family. Where have we heard that before? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, Abraham and Sarah, exactly. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and it's going to be from your loins, it's going to be from you know, your flesh and blood, which implied the marriage because the two become one, so it implied that Sarah was going to be the mother. She was the one who was going to give birth. But so much time had passed that they started doubting God's promise. They started saying, well, maybe that's not exactly what God meant, and they tried to interpret God's promise. And so Sarah says, well, maybe this is what God meant. Here's my servant Hagar. Have kids through her. Because that's the way that it was back then. If a woman couldn't have kids, they would, get a, they would hire a mother to be the surrogate. And uh, when the child was born, it says that it was born on the knees. Now, it sounds kind of strange, but today, when a woman has a baby, they have their legs up in the stirrup and they're laying horizontally flat. To me, that's stupid. Why are doctors giving birth that way? It makes no sense. Why not stand up and have gravity work for you? So when women were giving birth back in these times, they had two, uh, two posts in the tent that they grabbed onto and they squatted down and they let gravity do the work. And so if a woman was holding on to these two poles in the birthing chamber and the woman that was going to adopt the child, it's, it's her child and the, the woman giving birth was only the surrogate, she would get right underneath, uh, she would sit down in a chair and get like right as close to the woman giving birth as possible. So when the baby came out, it would literally be born on her knees. 
And that was kind of symbolic that, you know, this is my child. This is not your child. You had this child for me. We hired you. You're the surrogate. And so that's how children were born back then. They weren't, they were, they were born horizontally, not vertically. <laughs> and we kind of got it all backwards. Uh, so, uh, all right. So she said, here's my maidservant Bilhah, go to her and let her give birth on my knees uh, so that from her I may also build a family. Then she gave her maidservant Bilhah to him for a wife, and Jacob went to her. Bilhah became pregnant and gave birth uh, to a son for Jacob. So Rachel said, God has judged my cause and also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Dan means to judge. So Daniel, Danael, means God is my judge. So she named him Dan because now she's like, God finally judged in my favor. Leah may have had four sons, but now I have a son through the surrogate mother Bilhah. And so God is judged in my favor. So here we have this contest that begins, this rivalry that begins between the two sisters. And they're having this contest to see who can have as many kids. And the more kids you have, they, they're thinking, oh, Jacob's going to love me more. And, you know, that's why it became law uh, later in the scriptures in the Torah that you weren't supposed to marry two sisters because this scenario happening right here. And I don't know if you remember sitcoms or not, and I'm going to show my age here, but you remember one day at a time, right? Those, those sisters sometimes fought over the same guy. And the sisters were cutthroat when it came to that. And they became enemies for an episode or two because they were fighting over the same guy. And God wanted to prevent that, so he eventually made it a law that, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> so um, we see that uh, she has Dan as a son. Then Rachel's female servant became pregnant again and gave birth to a second son for Jacob. So Rachel said, I've surely wrestled greatly with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. So Naphtali means to wrestle. So you can see that this baby contest, baby making contest is pretty serious. She's considering this is war. So she's, she's saying that I've wrestled with my sister over this issue and I'm coming out on top because now I have a second son. And she named him Naphtali. All right, so I think this probably would be a good point to stop for now. So we'll stop at verse 9. And let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to read and study your word and get into the mysteries and the intricacies of your word that's not usually brought out in Sunday school lessons. And that's why I love the Sunday school class so much is to just get into the mysteries of it and into the, the language and the culture of it so we can understand it better. And people have a lot of questions about the Old Testament because we are 4,000, 6,000 years removed from the events of the time and culture. And we're reading it here in the 21st century in the Western culture through Western eyes. And we're like, this stuff is crazy. It doesn't make sense to us. But when we understand the culture and the language, then we're like, ah, oh, okay, I get it now. And it helps us to understand the Bible better and gives the Bible more credibility. And a lot of these things we're confused over or think that there's contradictions in gets flattened out and straightened out and smoothed over once we understand the behind the scenes type of stuff in the scripture. And that's why this class excites me so much. 
So Lord, I just pray that you would just help us to take what we've learned, uh, help us to meditate on it and, and to think about it and to uh, assimilate it into our, our spiritual lives and allow us, Lord, to share it with somebody else. You know, get in a good conversation with a lost family member or friend and be able to explain some things maybe that they're even having difficulties and issues with. And uh, Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we ask your blessings upon the service that we're about to go into. And we pray and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.